So we have been working our way through Mark and John for most of this year. And one of the most defining features about Mark's gospel is uh, the pacing of it. So Mark, there is a, a sense that Mark is in a hurry. Uh, he uses the word uthos uh, in, in Greek, which means immediately 45 times. Uh, so Matthew only uses it five times and Luke only uses that word once. But Mark is constantly in a hurry and there is a certain pacing to it. So much so, at the beginning of Mark, he skips the birth of Jesus entirely and jumps straight into the ministry of Jesus. So whilst the other Gospels kind of pay a little bit more of the background story, Mark jumps straight in. In the first chapter of Mark, we have Jesus' baptism, the announcement of the kingdom of God, the calling of the first disciples, the casting out of a demon, and a multitude of healings. He is in a hurry, uthos, immediately. Uh, so the, the, the gospel of Mark is bold and vivid. And uh, at the same time, it gives us these really personal kind of pictures of Jesus. Some people think that the gospel of Mark might be um, Peter's reflections. Um, but we, you know, who really knows where, the, where they got their source kind of witness material from. But the gospel of Mark gives us Jesus uh, in an in, in emotional way. So it talks about Jesus loving and it talks about his compassion and his grief and anxiety even. Uh, but in the, the gospel itself, in the writing, there is this thing called incalculation, um, sorry, intercalation that Mark does. And the, the easier way to say intercalation is to say a Markan sandwich. And that is where Mark will take two stories and he'll start the story and then jump another one in. So he has the bread and then the meat and then... He'll go back to that original story. So he'll go back to the bread again. So there's this three-part, uh, three-act set, a Mark and Sandwich intercalation. Uh, and you would have noticed that uh, when we were looking in the Gospel of Mark. When was that? In uh, Mark 5, 21 to 43, when Jesus, his family's saying, he's crazy. He's a crazy man. And then the people from Jerusalem who'd come down, they said, no, 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 he's possessed. Jesus is possessed. That's why he's doing these things. And then after Jesus speaks to them, resolves that, it goes back to the family again. And the family are there. And he says, no, my real family are those who do the will of God. So there is this family, rulers from Jerusalem, family, Mark and Sandwich. That was a few weeks ago. Okay, so today we have another one of these Mark and Sandwiches. Uh, so it covers quite a bit of the text. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to work our way through it and then we can read it together at the end. Uh, so we're going to start out in Mark chapter 5. No, wait a minute. Mark chapter 5, I just said that with the, where we were last week, that wasn't Mark chapter, no, a couple of weeks ago, that wasn't in Mark chapter 5, that was in Mark chapter 3. Where is it when Jesus is talking to his family? I'm pretty sure that was Mark chapter 3. We're in Mark chapter 5 this week. It doesn't matter. All right. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Does anyone want to take a guess at where they are when it says, again, he's crossed the lake to this place? No one's feeling brave? Galilee, uh, Galilee somewhere. Not quite. Uh, so it is the Sea of Galilee um, or the... the uh, the Sea of or Lake of Tiberias, or the, it's got all different names. Um, yeah, but he keeps crossing the lake, and so we assume that he's back in Capernaum again. 
We have talked about Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum's a fishing town. It's like a major city uh, township. It's not huge. It is interesting, though, because when I research Capernaum, I find people say normally that it was about 1,500-odd people lived there. Uh, but then I was reading a commentary just uh, in the last few days, and the and I won't say who it was, but they were like, there was only a few hundred people. and I'm So now I'm stumped. Having been there, I can tell you it was a reasonably big place as far as ancient uh, setups go, I suspect that the commentary I was reading was talking about the Jewish community. So Capernaum is at the top of the lake. Here we are doing our geography again, kind of northwest of the Lake of Galilee, which is, uh, so Jesus grew up south of there. And uh, it's possible and likely that the majority of this place was not Jewish, that it was a Gentile area. Because the further north you go, the further away from Jerusalem you're getting. Uh, so this is kind of at the toppest, topmost point of the Lake of Galilee, away from Jerusalem. So it's possible that the Jewish community was a bit smaller in this town, but certainly it was a major city center uh, for that region, and it was a fishing town. It's also the place where Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus cast out a demon. In Matthew 8, uh, where he heals the centurion's son. So this is likely a place big enough, you know, that people are you know, this centurion is either still a centurion or he's retired there. Uh, and it's also where he heals the official son. Uh, Peter's family lives there. So uh, Peter's mother-in-law, he, Jesus heals her here. He heals a paralytic man. It's also the home of uh, Simon Peter and Andrew uh, and the disciple Matthew, the tax collector. So Capernaum is a decent sized place. Uh, so much so that it still gets recorded though later on. Uh, this is why uh, it's kind of a disappointing story for Capernaum because in Luke 10, Capernaum is recorded as a place of unbelief. It, doesn't, it gets put up there with a list of, of places that didn't believe. All right, so we're in Capernaum. That's our guess. It doesn't explicitly say it, but that's our guess. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now, there was probably a handful of synagogue leaders. Uh, some people talk about Jairus being like the president of the synagogue there. This is not Jerusalem. So he's not the high priest. This is just like a local towns. He's just a local pastor. That's but he's still a pretty important and well-known guy. Everyone would know who he was. So for him to come and fall at the feet, can you imagine being the pastor in a church? This is like the regional center with Jesus in your community. Like this is what, you know, like what a pain in the butt. So Jesus is there though now and Jairus has fallen at Jesus' feet because Jairus is now desperate. His daughter, his little daughter is ill. And he doesn't care uh, what people think of him. The time for pride and proprietary has passed for Jairus. He doesn't care what they whisper about him around town. His situation is hopeless. He's desperate and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet and he pleads with him. Uh, and he says, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. If you come, Jesus, if you would just come and put your hands on her, she would be saved. That's this word sozo means saved. Uh, we also translate it as healed. So if you come and put your hands on her, she'll be saved and she will live. 
And then it says in verse 24, it just says, so Jesus went with him. Now, this is halfway through this verse 24. We get the, that's the first piece of the sandwich. So we're in our Mark and sandwich, the introductory scene, act one, Jairus sees Jesus arrive and he runs to Jesus, falls at his feet and says, my little daughter is ill. Uh, Please, can you come? And Jesus says, sure thing. Now the narrative switch into act two. We are now, uh, it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So he said, I'm going to walk with you, Jairus. They're heading off to Jairus' place and the crowd starts to press in around Jesus and Jairus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Let's just just take a moment to consider the the circumstances of this poor woman's life. Uh, Because like we're talking... This is a long time ago. And so, so she is unwell. It says that she has been unwell for 12 whole years. You'll note that Jairus' daughter is 12. His little daughter is 12 years old. And for the entire length of Jairus' daughter's life, this woman has been afflicted with a bleeding problem. In the next verse, it talks about how... Um, I'll, I'll talk about when I get there. Um, uh, but she's, she has a flow of blood. And we assume that this is some kind of menstrual blood situation. It's not explicit, but that is basically how it's always been interpreted. She's been to every expert. She's run out of all of her money. So now she is not only sick, but she is poor and somewhat destitute and totally desperate. Her malady has only gotten worse. And to top it off, in the Hebrew scriptures, when like uh, there are lots of rules about purity. And, and uh, two of the central kind of tenets of those rules are dead things make you impure and bodily fluids make you impure. So Jesus is on his way to Jairus' daughter, who we shortly find out is dead. Well, Jesus, Jesus says she's sleeping. So Jairus has come with this problem that will cause impurity. And now this woman has come and she is in the Jewish world impure. Uh, in Leviticus 15:19 it says when a woman has her regular flow of blood the impurity of her monthly uh, period will last 7 days and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Uh, but it's more than that if you keep reading in uh, in Leviticus 15 there it's it says anything that this that a woman who is bleeding or frankly anyone who is bleeding because it's about bodily fluid about blood but if a woman is bleeding uh, in and she has her period you can't sit on the same piece of furniture that she sat on. You can't lie in the same bed that she was lying upon. If you touch anything that she touches, you become unclean. And then you have to wash all your clothes, have uh, get bathed, and then in the evening you can be clean. It's an incredible inconvenience, these purity laws, especially around this poor woman who is bleeding. So for 12 years, no one has touched her. No one has touched anything that she's touched, lest they become unclean. So it's possible that for this woman, when she had reached the age of, of, of maturity as a young woman, just like Jairus' daughter, who is now in their culture, just coming on her womanhood, just about to be an, uh, about a marriageable age, which is horrifying to us. But remember, people only lived till they were like 40 then. So getting married at 12 or 13 was more culturally appropriate. 
But here is this woman who possibly, as soon as she reached adulthood, started to have this bleeding problem. So her entire adult life, it means that no one would have married her. Or had she uh, taken on this malady later, her husband probably would have left her because he can't touch her, he can't lay in a bed with her, he can't be with her. This is a woman who is ill. This is a woman who is poor. This is a woman who is desperate. This is a woman who is so socially isolated and so outcast that I can't even begin to imagine. I just spent a week in Sydney and I could call people and hang out with people and eat meals with people and do things that I sat with people and had this course and, and I was lonely because I didn't have any physical touch for one whole week. 12 years this woman has been afflicted by bleeding that makes her untouchable. And when she heard about Jesus, so Jairus saw Jesus and ran to him. And now this woman has heard about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. This woman should not have been in a crowd. This was breaking all the rules. You're not meant, she is unclean. She's meant to literally like tell people whenever she goes, I'm unclean, don't come near me. But she thinks thinks, if I just can get close to Jesus, I can touch his cloak. I can touch his clothes and I will be healed. See, for her, the time of pride and propriety had well and truly passed. She didn't care what people whispered about her around town anymore. Her situation was hopeless and she was desperate and she'd heard that Jesus was here. So she rushed to find him. If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. If I just touch his clothes, it's that sozo again, I will be saved. You see, this woman didn't just need physical healing. This woman needed to be saved from the total abandonment that her culture had given her. Total isolation. And then we have uh, this, this very Markan word, uthos. Immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. In the Greek, uh, this more accurately translates immediately the fountain of her blood stopped, had dried up. The fountain of blood dried up and she was freed from her suffering. She was set free, she was saved. At once, Uthos again, immediately Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. The disciples don't come off well in this story. In fact, the Gospel of Mark doesn't have a problem painting them as as a bunch of bumbling idiots. And here is a situation where we will see that this high priest, not high priest, that this uh, synagogue ruler, Jairus, is is showing great faith uh, throughout this process. Remember, he's trying to get to his very ill daughter with Jesus the healer right now and they're getting caught up and the crowd is in the way and Jairus is getting to freak out. And then this woman who is bleeding turns up and she has enormous great faith. She's the witness. It says that she comes behind Jesus uh, and there is a sentiment there of her coming behind Jesus like a disciple comes and follows behind Jesus. 
And she touches his cloak and she is set free. She is saved. She is given liberty. And, and the fountain of her blood dries up. And the disciples say, oh, how did you know someone touched you? You see, we get this picture of the disciples where they are not being good followers. But Jairus is here following Jesus to his daughter. And this woman has come up behind Jesus, is following Jesus, and has now been radically healed. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Sozo again. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus speaks to a woman, speaks to and calls them daughter. This woman has such great faith. She hasn't just been healed, she's been saved. And she hasn't just been saved, she's also become part of family with Jesus. This is an incredible thing because she is a woman who is alienated socially from family and Jesus calls her daughter. Jesus embraces her as family. Instead of becoming unclean at this woman's touch, she has become clean at Jesus' touch. And that's the end of Act 2. So we have Act 1, introduces Jairus. Act 2 is this incredible story of this woman of great faith who comes and follows behind Jesus and touches his cloak and is healed and is saved. And then we, we get back to the other side of the sandwich. We get to see how Mark expresses the disciple-like faith of Jairus as well. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why bother the teacher? You see, because they're embarrassed about Jairus' behavior. He's this important synagogue leader who's meant to be respectable. And Jesus is this Galilean bumpkin who is going around causing trouble. So now Jairus' daughter has died. They're like, let's just stop this act in the middle of it because it's embarrassing that Jairus is pulling this guy in. Why bother the teacher anymore? Your daughter is dead. Not a lot of compassion in that. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. So just as the woman came in faith and trembled before Jesus to, to, to share the truth, we now have uh, Jairus also reflecting that, that fear and Jesus saying, don't be afraid, just believe. See, Jairus has got all these hoops that he's jumping through, all these reasons why he shouldn't have faith. First of all, his daughter is unwell and then they're being interrupted and then his daughter is, he's being told they're dead and Jesus just keeps saying, no, 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 you keep, you keep believing. He did not let anyone uh, follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of uh, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. This was a normal custom when someone would die; they would have like I want to say professional criers and wailers, but like people from the community would come and they would make a lot of noise so that the family could make noise and not feel embarrassed. So the community would wail and cry. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. 
but they laughed at him. After, they, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, Uthos, remember Mark's in a hurry here, immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, Uthos again, immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So in this Mark and Sandwich, we have two stories and they're put together because there is an agenda that Mark, the author, has. Each of the different Gospels, they each have a different agenda and Mark has his agenda. And this is one of the ways in this intercalations that he pushes his agenda. There is a powerful and righteous man uh, who has uh, influence and authority and there is a powerless an unclean woman who is impoverished and alone. One is wealthy and influential. The other is outcast and impoverished. And in this, we can see that it doesn't matter how you come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus at the top of the social chain or you can come at the bottom. You can come to Jesus when you are destitute, impoverished, or you can come to Jesus when you have all power. One has a 12-year-old daughter on their deathbed. The other has been afflicted for 12 years. Both express faith and fear. Both bring uh, impurity to the table. Jesus risks being uh, near this dead child and becoming impure. And he risks being near this dead woman, this bleeding woman. Yet both of them fall at Jesus' feet and both have their faith rewarded. One with a daughter restored and healed and saved and the other who is proclaimed as a daughter and who is healed and saved. See, these are like signposts for us in the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that I struggle with when I read through the Gospels is I think Jesus did these miracles, but like, did he heal every single person in the whole of Israel? Well, no. And he didn't raise, there's like a handful of stories where Jesus raises people from the dead. And you're like, man, if I could do that, I'd just go to a hospital. Like I just raise them all from the dead. Like, why don't we see that? But in this case, we see this intercalation of stories where Jesus does these healings and they are signposts for us. They are signposts that show us what the kingdom of God is going to look like. It says, this is the path that we follow. This is the path that we follow to get to that kingdom. And along the way, Jesus leaves signposts of great healing and miracles. He didn't he didn't heal every single person in the whole world or raise every dead person in the whole world. But in these examples, we can see the signposts heading towards his kingdom. God is remaking the world through his son. And this is the beginning of it. And Mark is in a hurry. It's immediate. It's happening. It's moving. It's vibrant. These are the signposts that Jesus left behind in his ministry so that we can follow them and say, yeah, we know that this is the right direction. The oppressed are set free, the afflicted are healed, the blind have their sight restored, the dead are raised, and all injustices ultimately get made right. The greatest signpost of all we find in Christ on the cross. And this is a signpost where Christ lays down his life. He volunteers as a sacrifice. 
And he makes this grand gesture and sign that says, I have overcome the power of death and sin. And he, and he raises from the dead. And it's a signpost that heralds us for a season and a time that is coming when all things are made right. So I want to challenge you before I read through this verse that if you are in the midst of life pressing in around you, maybe you feel unseen or unheard, even untouchable, but if you reach out and get in close behind Jesus and reach out to him, he will reach back out to you. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you, that you have left these signposts for us that you have given us these examples of faith. And I pray that we would follow uh, behind you as this poor woman did 
that we would have great faith even against the ongoing adversity as Jairus did. I pray that we would continue to see your signs and wonders and know that you are making the whole world new and that one day these signs, uh, we will actually arrive at, at the beautiful destination of your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.